We've been in a series where we've been walking roads with Jesus. We've been visiting the places that He visited in Galilee and and Nazareth and Judea and Samaria. And we learned that it it was some time ago that He actually sent His face towards Jerusalem. And today we're actually going to focus on the road to Calvary. Jesus has arrived at Jerusalem. He's going through all kinds of mock trials. He's facing conspiracies and lies, and we're going to find him standing before Pilate after he's already stood before the chief priests, and we're going to take some of these last steps with Jesus as he visits the guards in the praetorium and then makes his way as he takes the final steps to the road of Calvary that leads to a place called Golgotha. I want to invite you to follow along with me, Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, he said, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So the Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release one prisoner for them when they asked. And among them, the rebels in the prison who had committed a murder and an insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And in answering them, he said, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Because he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have them release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Crucify him! And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the entire battalion, a a group of about 600 men. And they clothed Jesus in a purple cloak, and twisting together a, a rough crown of thorns, they placed it on his head, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said, and they were striking his head with the reed and spitting on him and kneeling down, paying false homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes back on him and then led him out to be crucified. And they compelled a passerby, a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them casting lots for them to decide which each of them should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. May the Lord Jesus bless the reading of his word to our hearts and minds on this our Lord's day. This morning we come to a road that leads to Calvary, but it's actually a road that began in the Garden of Eden. It just finds its ending in a place called Jerusalem. And it's here where Jesus takes his final steps from the porches of Pilate to a hill that's called Calvary. I want you to know that it's a road on which every sin that's ever been known to humanity is to be encountered. And this morning we're going to see sin raise its ugly head 
and the scenes of many of the people that make up the different scenes as Jesus takes his final steps. When he walks from Pilate's Praetorium to the hill called the Skull, by the way of Calvary. But before we look at what Jesus encountered on the road to Calvary, I want us to take a few moments this morning to remind ourselves of one thing that he's been stressing to this small band of apostles that's been following him, along with a group of his closest followers who have stuck the closest to him. He shared with them at least three times that since he'd put his face towards Jerusalem, that death awaited him there. I think Jesus has tried to be as clear with them as he possibly could. But what I want us to remember is not just the death that we're going to talk about this morning as Jesus takes these final steps. But I want us to remember that he started, remember, when Kent started this series, Jesus started his ministry in Galilee. And he came preaching the exact same message that I hope we're preaching today. A simple message that's centered on this. God loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son to show you how to be a real follower of Jesus, how to live life as true godly people. But here's the hook. Not only did he show us how to walk as children of the king, because that's the question. Is he really the king of the Jews? And maybe perhaps this morning, a more appropriate question, is he really the king of kings in our lives? Not only did he show us how to walk as children of the king, but Jesus himself provided both the way and the means to become godly followers of Jesus. And now because of his teachings, we we know that he came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves because our sin required the offering of death. It required the shedding of blood. An innocent lamb without spot or blemish needed to be offered. And here's the good news. Everybody say good news. In Galilee, Jesus was introduced to us as the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. He came to be a sin offering. My sin offering. Your sin offering. He's a sin offering on the cross who bore on himself everything that God has against us because of the sinfulness of the human race. And he lived up to and fulfilled all the righteous requirements of God's law because none of us could. The road to Calvary, folks, is a road that's paved with love. It's always been about the magnanimous grace of God, a love that's so intentional that it's directed just to you and me if we were the only ones there. I want you to think about this. Think about it, that somebody stepped in to save us from our sins because of our own inability to live up to God's righteous requirements. He came to mediate on our behalf. He came to be our personal representative. Because of what Jesus has already accomplished, once and for all, you and I and all who believe, all that we're asked to do now is to respond to his invitation. And when you hear the Holy Spirit tug on your heart, I want you to know that that's God. I want to encourage you to repent. I I want to encourage you to turn from sinful ways and to posture yourself in a position of life where you become a committed follower of Jesus Christ and all of his teachings. That's tall order, isn't it? When your mind suddenly begins to see and understand what your heart's already known to be true, that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Savior, he is Lord, I want you to know that this is God speaking to you. Repent and turn from your sinful ways. 
and ask God's forgiveness through Jesus. Then accept his invitation to become a follower. Now, a follower is just simply somebody who bases all of their understanding or all of their life's All of their understanding of life values is centered on the teachings of Jesus. Everything that the Scriptures declare He did screen God's love for you and me. And if you're here this morning wondering, hey, is this guy really for real? Because you really don't know people like me. In fact, preacher, you don't even know me. Because nobody in their right mind, if they really knew me, could love me, let alone forgive me. Well, you're right about one thing. I might not know you. But I can tell you that I was once in that place. And the love of Jesus reached through the ages of time. All the ugliness of my sinfulness. And called my name. And here's the good news. It really doesn't matter what your sin is. It really doesn't matter what you've done or where you've come from. Jesus came to do what he did on the cross for you. He took your sin and all that comes with it, and he's made a way to put away once and for all all of the guilt, all of the shame, all of the condemnation that comes with the sinfulness of humanity. Man, I was out in the timber preaching this, getting ready for this. I preached myself so happy. I thought if this wasn't a Reformed church, I might dance a little bit. So as we walk through this final road to Calvary, if you hear God's Spirit tugging on your heart to make your life right with God, or you see for the first time that your life and your head are agreeing with what your heart tells you, just surrender. Just surrender. Just accept His love. Let Him bring healing to your soul. Like a person lost in a vast city, just begin to follow His voice. Home. But you're right, I I don't know you. I mean, the person that we all let everybody know isn't always the real us. But I can tell you this, that as a follower of Jesus, I can stand before you and wholeheartedly tell you with all that I know and have to believe in, that this same Jesus who called out to those on the roads who have brought us to this place on Calvary, the Marys and the Marthas, the blind Bartimaeuses, the wee little Zacchaeuses. And the same way that Jesus knew their name, as we walk this road to Calvary, I want you to know that Jesus knows your name. Contemplate on that. Contemplate on the personal connection and relationship that is so magnanimous and so great that in the vast array of the universe, I can't even wrap my head around that. It's so big. God knows you. You know, there have already been a number of hearings when we come to this road in which Jesus has been examined and cross-examined. The leading counsel for the Jews, known as the Sanhedrin, have already condemned Jesus, wrongfully so, but found, found him guilty nonetheless. And now they're seeking out the death sentence to be carried out with the sanction of the authorities in Rome in Mark chapter 15, verses 1 and following. In verses 1 through 15, Jesus faces Pilate's final interrogation. And it's the final dotting of the proverbial eye, if you will, that literally begins to, it seals Jesus' fate. 
The Jews are demanding a death sentence, and Pilate's now forced to deal with the matter after Herod sends Jesus back to finally be sentenced by Pilate. And this is where our story begins this morning. Jesus has been up all night. He's came from the garden. He's in a weakened state. And from the outside, this all appears to be under control, especially of the Jewish religious leaders who, who in their minds are really using the powers of Rome to do their bidding and to get rid of this self-proclaimed Messiah. And I think they're reveling in the fact that this was a plan that they had initiated three years before that. They've been looking for a way to get rid of Jesus the entire time, and finally it's, it's, it's culminating in this, and it's, it's really coming to fruition. But there's only one problem with this view. It, it wasn't the Jews or the Romans who were in control of this drama. Because the road to Calvary is a story that's been indelibly written into the pages of history, and it's not been written by the finger of any man. It's been inscribed in the pages of history by the very finger of God. Before one of these days or any of the beings that make up these scenes even came to be. The first scene in the drama that leads us to the road to Calvary started way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell prey to the temptations of the devil. And it was here that the first brick was laid that would pave the way down the Via Della Rosa, the way that Jesus would walk in the way of suffering. In verse 1, we're told that the chief priest with the elders and the scribes and the whole Sanhedrin, after questioning Jesus and trying to humiliate him and even providing witnesses to give false testimony against him, when they were finished with him, delivered him, rejected and despised as the king of the Jews tied up and bound to Pilate in his luxurious praetorium. If you want to find out where that's at, there's a map on the back of your sermon cell. You can, you can follow along and Take the final steps that Jesus makes on the way to Calvary. And it's here on Pilate's porch, this praetorium, that Jesus exhibits an unusual measure of silence where he just stopped talking. He didn't defend himself. He just shut down. I've contemplated this, and I really don't think he shut down. I think he does this because he's so surrendered. Hear me. I think he does this because he's so surrendered to obey the will of the Father that he knows and understands that the sole writer, the executive producer, and the master director of the drama is his Father. I think he, I think he knows that God is in such control of everything that absolutely nothing is taking place in these scenes that Jesus doesn't have the confidence in believing that even if he doesn't understand it fully, he knows that it's in the hands of his loving Father. And I would suggest to us this morning that absolutely nothing that is taking place or that is getting ready to take place has not been staged and set in place by the very power and the will of God. Every actor is in his or her place. Every prop has been staged to carry out the final steps of Jesus as he walks down the final road to Calvary. The Jews did it because they hated him, even though he claimed and clearly demonstrated to be their Messiah. But let's be honest, Jesus wasn't the kind of Messiah that they were expecting, let alone even wanted. But the prophets said that he'd be rejected. The prophets wrote that he would be despised, and then John said that he came to his own, and his own didn't even want him. They didn't even know him. 
And Pilate, he simply condemned Jesus to death just to avoid any complications with his position in Rome. And now to appease the chief priest, we have a growing agitated crowd that's full of unrest, and Pilate's just trying to settle them to avoid a riot. The problem was that Pilate couldn't find any real charges against Jesus that was worthy of death. So when the Jews rejected Jesus as their king and brought him before Pilate to be tried for treason, claiming him to be the king, Pilate was forced to interrogate Jesus. And this is why in verse 2 he asked the question, He says, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus answered, it's as you say it is. And that almost seems like it's a little cryptic, doesn't it, the way that we talk. But I really think best and the most simple way to translate this in an understanding is for Jesus to just say, yes, yes, I am. But it's also an answer that comes with the qualification that's attached. And when we read the other gospels, we see this. Because as Messiah, Jesus is the king of the Jews, but his concept of kingship differs from Pilate's implied question. Because when Pilate asks Jesus this question in one of the other gospels, he looks at Pilate and he says, yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. And as soon as he said that, I think Pilate just kind of shifted gears and just threw Jesus over to this religious fanatical side of fantasy because he was no threat to Rome. And again, Pilate tries to get Jesus to respond to the accusations of the chief priest. And now the whole crowd are bringing against him. And we're told in verse 5 that from this point on, Jesus didn't utter another word. Now contemplate this with me. The king of all kingdoms remains silent. And why? Why? Because I think he was modeling for us what it's, what it's like to be able to live life on this earth and live with such a confidence and the power and the will of God that we can, infa- we can face, we can endure, we can go through, and we can come out on the other side of anything victorious when we know that what we know, we know that God is with us. And that if God is with us, then who can stand against us? You see, I think Jesus knew that his father was the sole writer of this script. I think he knew the executive producer personally. And I think everything that he did was under the master direction of the father. And maybe Peter's words in 1 Peter 2 capture the meaning of what I'm trying to say. Peter's writing to a group of Christians who are going through intense suffering. And he says this to them. He writes to them and he says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He was one who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he remained silent and uttered no threats, but, everybody say but. Hear this, in the midst of life's greatest pressures... Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly or righteously. Through all of this, Pilate fails to secure an acquittal for Jesus and to prevent an uprising from the agitated crowd. He appeases them and offers them a traditional sign and they cry for Barabbas. 
And he turns to them and he says, well, what I do, what do you want me to do with Jesus? What do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? And they said, crucify him, crucify him. And I had ordered Jesus to be scourged and to be crucified. What an ugly scene. One of deceit and betrayal. One of rejection. I mean, what part of an ugly scene like that do you pick out to talk about sinful behavior? What crowd do you pick? It's on every front. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. But he allowed the political interest to trump justice. There There's so many depictions of the sinfulness of humanity in these scenes that I don't know which ones to point out to us. So I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart as you continue to ask the question, Jesus, where are you in my life in the midst of this? Jesus, what are you really saying to me in my life as I walk these roads with Jesus? Pilate condemning Jesus to death violated every personal conviction he held against sinning against truth. His own conscience. He violated the integrity of the entire process. And a question that I have for me is, J.R., what do you let stand in your way between your relationship and Jesus and doing life with integrity? Then they led him to the soldiers where the abuse really started. When they got their hands there in Jesus, a Roman flogging was a brutal scene, and it always came with the execution of a capital sentence that was handed out towards male offenders. The victim, they said, would be stripped, and he would be forced to bend over a low pole so that the skin on his back could be stretched really tight. They would take out a whip that was known as a cat of nine tails or the scorpion and it was a wooden handle with a lot of braided leather and it was rather lengthy and it had a number of tails in it and on the end of it were sharp metal shards of bone and, and metal and they would just commence to whipping you. And the thing with the Romans is that there was no set number of, of, of lashes that they gave you. In fact, historians tell us that seven out of every ten per people died from one Roman scourging. It was that brutal. Just the scourging itself killed 70%. But because Jesus was a Jew, it was limited to 40 lashes, or 39 lashes. 40 minus 1. And if you've ever read any of Lee Strobel's books, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for Easter... He travels the world and he speaks to some of the world's leading forensic scientists and medical doctors who suggest that after the garden, Jesus was in a severe weakened state and that after the scourging, Jesus was already in the valley of the shadow of death. That in all probability, he'd have never even, that's why he didn't live very long. He was dying. It was a brutal picture. That after the soldiers finished whipping him, they 
They took him back to the praetorium, the guard, where 600 men gathered around, and they dressed him up in purple, and after twisting the crown of thorns, they pressed it upon his head, and they began to make fun of him and chant, Hail, King of the Jews! And they continued to beat him with the reed and spit on him in mockery and making a game of it, and even kneeling down before him and, and crying out, Hail, Jesus, King of the Jews! You ever been humiliated? Here's something to contemplate. That morning Jesus wore a scarlet robe when he stood before Pilate. And now even though the soldiers are taking off the purple robe and putting his own clothes back on him, Jesus would wear our sins in a scarlet robe on the cross as the blood flowed. And it was the prophet who wrote, Though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Then they strapped the cross beam of the cross on him, this piece. And remember, Jesus is dying. This is a huge piece of wood. It's a huge piece. It weighs 100 plus pounds. Now, I carried a 12 foot, 70 pound cross across the state of Kansas about 25 years ago. I can tell you it's a lot of work. Mine had a wheel on it. Mine weighed 70 pounds, the entire cross. Just the cross beam was over 100 pounds, and they lashed that to Jesus in his weakened state. He'd underwent such emotional duress in the garden that the capillaries in his body, his blood pressure was so high that it began to burst, and he sweat great drops of blood. The humiliation, the interrogation, being up all night, now being whipped, and now they've tied this to him as he walks the final steps to a place called Galgotha down the Calvary Road. And he's struggling. When I close my eyes, I can see the crowds. I can, I can see them screaming at him and hollering at him and demanding from him signs as his sweat and blood flows. And he's weakened. He's dying, remember? And in my mind, I see him dropping to his knee and then finally to his face. And he can't even get up anymore. He's so weak. And when the soldiers realize that Jesus is at his end, they reach into the crowd and they grab a person from the crowd, a, a man by the name of, of Simon. What they think is just a random selection, grabbing this innocent bystander. Little do they know that nothing happens by chance. And in this drama... What may appear to be random is a divine choice that really happens because God's already chosen you. God has chosen you in every circumstance that you'll ever face in life. Man, is that comforting to know that you didn't even choose him, he chose you. Not a lot's known about Simon other than the fact that he'd probably come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with everybody else and they take him out of the crowd and they force him to help Jesus carry this cross all the way to Golgotha because none of us bear our burdens alone. The Bible says he was compelled or pressed into carrying the cross. And what a picture of sinful failure of our lives to, to try to accomplish everything in life on our own. A picture that informs us that 
that we're here and we're all called to pick up the cross and carry one another's burdens to be true followers of Jesus. And maybe this is what Jesus had in mind when he said, when someone asked you to walk with him one mile, go two. I don't think it's any accident that Simon and his family were passing through Jerusalem on that day. I don't think it was an accident that they were singled out from everybody else in the crowd. Sometimes the road to Calvary demands from us that we walk a different beat than what the rest of the world does. And I really think that part of the shame that Jesus bore on our behalf was the burden for us to become more like him and less like those in the world. Walking the road to Calvary and carrying the cross of Christ, it's just not something we can pretend to do. You may walk the road to Calvary, but Jesus said that you'll always be able to tell those who are the sheep of his pasture because they hear his voice and they demonstrate their love for God by living out life and obedience to his word and by bearing fruit that is in line with a life that is repentant from the sinful failures of lives that are lived without him. Who is he to you? Is he the king of the Jews? Is he the king of glory and the king that rules in your heart? This morning I want to invite you to close your eyes with me. We're going to do a two-minute exercise where we're just going to sit here and contemplate a little bit. I want you to ask yourself, where do you see Jesus in your life? What do you hear him saying to you as you look at the scenes that lead to Calvary?